his mimetic desire. He began to study people, and as he did, he realized that we don't really know what we want, we don't know what we desire, but we look out at other people and we see what they desire, and then we begin to want that. We are imitative creatures. We are, and, and what, uh, what we imitate is called a model. It's a model for what we want. Uh, you can think of a celebrity might provide a model for something you want or a famous uh, uh, singer or an athlete. These people become models in our society, and they help us get uh, uh, an idea of what we want. Um, well, what is Christian discipleship but getting a new model, getting new desires, getting a new character because we have our following Jesus Christ? So as we come this morning to look at the first few disciples who begin to follow Jesus, I want to use this idea of imitative or mimetic desire. Mimetic just comes from Greek, mesis, which is, means imitation. We imitate people. We imitate others' desires. And I want to show that this is true in the text today, and it's also true for us in our own discipleship, that we are called to imitate Christ in the process of Following Jesus is a process of changing our desires so that we desire the things that Jesus loves and we hate the things that Jesus hates. And it's a process of having our character remade. So please stand with me this morning as we read from the Gospel of John, beginning at chapter 1, verse 35. It's also printed for you in the bulletin. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this portion of your word. And as we come seeking to follow Jesus ourselves, to be conformed to him, to have our desires and our character molded and shaped so that we conform more fully to Christ. Open our hearts and our minds to behold wonders out of your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name and amen. Amen. You may be seated. The process of discipleship is the process of changing our desires. You see, at the beginning of this text, it says, The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. You see, John is a model for what to desire. John the Baptist has a ministry. He's been out in the wilderness preaching repentance. He has a message of repentance because he has been sent to prepare the people of God 
for the coming Messiah. And because of this ministry, he has drawn disciples to himself, two of which are with John this day. And as Jesus passes by again, John the Baptist testifies, Behold, the Lamb of God. And we saw last week as we looked at this statement of John's, how pregnant with meaning it is, how he is drawing their attention to the Lamb that will take away their sins. And as he makes the same statement, his two disciples who are following him, one who is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, the other is probably the Apostle John. We know that the Apostle John is very shy in mentioning himself, right? He doesn't want to talk about himself. He wants to talk about Jesus, right? And so he doesn't say his name at all in the whole gospel. Probably the other disciple that was following John the Baptist was the Apostle John, who's with Andrew. When they hear John the Baptist say, Behold, the Lamb of God, they, they hear John telling them, commending Jesus to them. He's saying, brothers, you came and you modeled the desires that I have for Israel to repent, and that's good. But the reason that I came, my very purpose in baptizing and having this ministry out in the wilderness is because of him. And there he is. I'm commending him to you. You see, John, as a model of desire, is transferring from himself to a new model, to Jesus. Right? In that, we see the great transition from the old covenant to the new. Right? John the Baptist represents the old prophetic office that will be fulfilled in Christ Jesus. He is the prophet Elijah. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets who comes to call the people of God to repentance, to faithfulness. And he uh, occupies that space in between. A transition is happening where Jesus is coming onto the scene. He's beginning his ministry, as we saw with uh, the, the, uh, the um, uh, testimony of John last week, that he is the one who baptizes with the Spirit. And so he commends to his disciples a new model of desire, somebody that they could follow. And that's what they do. Immediately, they begin to follow Jesus now, we notice that initially their faith is literally just to follow after Jesus. He's going in this direction, so they go in that direction. But of course, in John, everything has, not everything, but many things in, John, in the Gospel of John have double meanings. They're meant to signify something deeper, so that we know the following of Jesus, although initially just curiosity, initially just trying to understand who this figure that John the Baptist says is the Lamb of God, although that's just initially just going in the same direction of him, it really uh, develops into an actual discipleship where they are sitting under Jesus' ministry. They're learning from him. They're following him in the sense that they are submitted to his teaching and are following after him as disciples. And as we notice, Jesus, throughout his ministry, uses a particular tactic that is very successful in getting his disciples and getting the crowds and the people around to think. He wants them to think for themselves. He wants them to begin to examine what they believe and why they believe it. And so he asks penetrating questions. 
They begin to follow him, and he says, What do you want? What are you seeking? What are you seeking from me? Um, They heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And then verse 38, it says, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? What do you want? Jesus says, what do you want, both from Jesus, but why are you following after me? It seems like just a basic question, like he's maybe annoyed that they're following him. But that's not the case at all. He wants them to begin to answer that question. What are you seeking from Jesus? And that's the same question he asks us today. What are you seeking from Jesus? And if you ask Christians that all across America, you will get wildly different answers, right? Many times we're coming to Jesus because we want our hurt healed. We're trying to get well. We want to feel better about ourselves. Maybe we want prosperity. We're hoping that God's going to bless us. We think if we, if we come to church and we tithe, then God will bless my next business venture. Right? We all come to Jesus with different expectations, but we often come without thinking about what are we seeking. What do you want from Jesus? Have you asked yourself that question? How have you answered it? How have you found Scripture has answered it? Now, of course, the disciples don't really know, do they? They don't know why they're following Jesus. They just know that somebody they respected, John the Baptist, commended Jesus to them, and they began to follow. They're probably hoping to find out more, to understand more. Now, of course, they come in a culture that's pregnant with expectation about the Messiah. They've been taught from the time they were very little to, to anticipate the coming of this figure who would free them from sin and lead them into the new life, into the new creation, right? They were expecting that the Messiah would bring the resurrection, right? And a lot of, depending on where you uh, were within different groups within Israel, you had different expectations of what Jesus would do, what the Messiah would do. Some, the zealots, thought that Jesus would free them from Roman oppression and, and bring a new kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And it would manifest the power of Israel again, just like David had in the past. And so the, the disciples come to Jesus with all their expectations, but not really knowing what they're seeking. And so they evade. They evade the question by asking him where you are staying. And and they say, Rabbi. And John, you'll notice that throughout the gospel, John wants to, he wants us to understand his gospel. Things that are difficult, he tries to explain. Translation issues, people who don't speak Aramaic any longer. He is writing to a, a largely Greco Roman population that doesn't know Aramaic, even if they're Jewish. They don't know Aramaic, and they don't know the Hebrew language. They're Greek speakers. And so he says, Rabbi, which means teacher. He will translate several times in this, in this uh, short section. He will also explain the Messiah means the Christ, and Cephas means Peter. And these are uh, translations from the Aramaic into the Greek Because John is aware that he has an audience, and he's writing to a particular audience, and he wants them to understand what he's writing. The disciples say rabbi, which is a term of respect and honor. It would be like uh, 
reverend doctor professor, right? You're trying to um, put all those, the emphasis on the respectability of the office. And so rabbi is not just a term you would give to anyone, although at this point in the first century, they don't have clear ordination processes, which they develop later, but it was a term of respect and honor that you earned by being wise and being steeped in the law of God and being able to interpret and teach it well by having applied it to your life. Not everybody was called rabbi. So they immediately, they separate Jesus as worthy of honor as somebody that they could follow. And they ask him, or they respond with an evasive answer to his question. Where are you staying? Hopefully, they're thinking that maybe they'll get a chance to spend more time with them, that they can better understand who he is and maybe what he requires of them to be his disciples. Because rabbis, they had expectations for their learners, for their those who would sit in their school. Uh, you don't in, enroll in a PhD program without clear guidance of what's expected of you to get that degree. Well, it's the same in this situation. So they're probably trying to figure out what does Jesus require of us? Then we'll make a commitment to following them. But again, John's word for staying is used several times. They say, where are you saying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day. Do you notice how many times he said stay and staying and stayed? Three times. And that word is the same word that John uses in John 15 as abide. Abide with Christ. Jesus says, those who abide in me, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you abide in me, then you will have life. Uh, and John is drawing our attention to the fact that disciple with, discipleship with Jesus means remaining with him. It means abiding with him. It means continuing in his fellowship. It means staying with him. Jesus' answer, of course, is, is very telling. They say, where are you staying? And he says to them, come and you will see. Come is an imperative. He is calling them. Come to me, and you will see. You will see where I'm staying. You will see the life that I have, and you will see the life that I will give for you. Come, and welcome to Jesus Christ. Jesus invites them to a process of having their desires changed. They don't know what they want. They don't know why they're seeking Jesus. They don't know what they need to want. But Jesus knows. And he says, come, come and be shaped and molded by me. Stay with me, remain with me, and I will shape and transform you to be more like me. Jesus, at the very beginning, is giving us so much detail about what this discipleship process looks like. It's with Jesus in his school to have our lives changed, our desires shaped and molded so that we can begin to answer the question, what are you seeking? What are you seeking when you come to Jesus? He promises that you will see. We don't remain infants in our faith, right? We grow to maturity and we come to learn that why I have come to Jesus is because I cannot go anywhere else to find life. 
There is no life apart from Jesus. So we come to him to have a life, right? That is the very purpose that John is writing this gospel. And I've told you, every sermon is going to be about that same point. So that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in him. That's the point that John is writing his gospel. And that's the point that Jesus is saying, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? The problem is that we have so many different models for what we are seeking. We have so many different ideas of what the good life looks like, of what we should want. What is advertising but the, the, the process of trying to shape your desires so that you will buy what they're selling you? They want you to want it, and so they parade in front of you other people who want it, who have it. They apparently have that good life that you're looking for, and if you just buy that BMW, you'll have it too. You'll have the beautiful wife and the two adorable children and, and everything that comes with it, as long as you have that car or you shave with that product, right? And they're telling a story. They're trying to shape your desires. They're trying to get you to want what they want. That's what Jesus is doing too. Jesus is saying, come and you will see. Come to Jesus Christ and have your desires shaped so you can begin to answer the question, what are you seeking? What do you want? Jesus in discipleship is in the process of changing your desires. But he doesn't stop just there. He's also in the process of changing your character. Notice right away that after Jesus tells them to come and see them, which it's four o'clock in the evening, so they probably go and stay with him in his house. They sleep the night, probably. They stay with him. And then the next thing in the morning, Andrew, before anything, he goes and he finds his brother. Now, Andrew is not as well known as Peter, and so he's identified as being the brother of Simon Peter. This is important because probably at the time of John's writing, Peter is a more famous apostle than Andrew. And so he's identified as being the brother of Peter. He goes and he finds his brother and he tells him, we have found the Messiah. Now, we learned something. We, we, we talked about this last week, but what do disciples do when they come and they find life? I mean, what do you do when you find that product that you love and it's life-changing? You tell everybody about it, right? You have this new cleaning product that completely scrubs all the grease out of everything and you, you're the biggest salesman for it, right? Because you love it. It's changed your life. What do disciples do when they come to the life, the life-transforming word of God who is life and light in himself? Well, we go when we tell other people. We go when we find our brother who doesn't yet know the Messiah and we say, come, I got to introduce you to the Messiah. It hasn't changed. The process is not any different. That's the first thing Andrew does. He goes and he finds his brother and he says, I have found the Messiah. And of course, Peter's eager. He follows right after him. So having transferred to a new model of desire, they seek confirmation by inviting others to see what they see, right? This is how we confirm that our desires are genuine and good. We want others to join with us. Otherwise, we feel alone in the things that we want, and we won't pursue them any longer. 
We are group people. We are community people. We're made for community. We're made to be to imitate other people. And this is not bad. This is good. It's a design feature. It can go bad when we don't imitate the right people, when we don't imitate God. But that's who we were made to imitate. Now, Jesus is the Messiah, which John translates for us as the Christ. And the Messiah just is the Hebrew word uh, for anointed, which is the same word for the Greek word Christ, Christos. It just means anointed. And it came to, to be a, a, a particular figure who would fill certainly David's office of being the anointed king, but also uh, the priestly office was an anointed office, and so was the prophetic office. Jesus would come, the Messiah would come, and he would be a prophet, priest, and king, fulfilling all the types and shadows that God had promised in this figure who would, as we saw last week, be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Jesus is the Messiah. And Andrew is reasonably sure that he has found the Messiah. And so he goes and he tells his brother and brings him along. But notice what happens when Jesus, when Peter comes to Jesus. Look in verse 42. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him. Jesus looked at Peter like no one has ever looked at Peter before. Jesus looked at Peter and knew him. He understood him. He knew what was in Peter, but he also knew what he would make of Peter, right? He didn't look at Peter and see, okay, this guy's got some good leadership qualities. You know, when I'm looking at people, this is what I do, right? I'm not omniscient. I can't see inside your heart. I I look at your actions. I look at the things you do, and I think, wow, this person has this gift. They're really great at serving people. Wow, this one has the gift of encouragement, right? They can speak those words of encouragement. I can look at what you do, but Jesus looks at the heart. He can see in ways that I can never see. And he says, you are Simon, the son of John. That's who you are. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. He doesn't give any explanation. John expects us to understand that this means that, um, remember, he's writing his gospel later. We already have the other gospels. He's not trying to say the same thing that the other gospel writers have already said. Right? And we know that this, uh, this confession is grounded on Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ that he is the Son of God. And it's that rock, that confession, that Jesus says, I will build my church. But at this point, he just just renames him. He just says, you're not Simon any longer. You're now Peter. And this is the process of discipleship. Jesus is in the business of remaking you. He knows where he wants you to be, and you cannot even fathom that. You don't understand it. Simon will become Peter through discipleship with Jesus. Interestingly, I was reading recently a book by Adam Alter called Drunk Tank Pink, and he's trying to uh, understand some of the uh, reasons why we make decisions the way we do. He has this really interesting chapter on names. He says this in the beginning of this chapter. He says, when Carl Jung, one of the most famous psychiatrists of the 20th century, 
once wondered why he was so fixated on the concept of rebirth, the answer arrived in a flash of insight. His name meant young, and from birth he had been preoccupied with the concepts of youth, aging, and rebirth. Many years later, in 1994, a contributor to the feedback column in the New Scientist magazine labeled the phenomenon nominative determinism, literally meaning name-driven outcome. And the writer noted that the current Lord Chief Justice of England and Wales is Justice Igor Justice. His colleague, Lord Justice Laws, is a judge in the Court of Appeal. In the realm of athletic pursuits, Anna Smashnova was a professional Israeli tennis player. Lane Beachley is a seven-time world champion surfer. Derek Kickett was Australian rules footballer. Stephen Robotham was an Olympic rower for the Britain. And Usain Bolt is the fastest man in the world over the 100-meter and 200-meter distances. Now, it's tempting to dismiss these anecdotes as scattered coincidences, but researchers have shown that our names take deep root within our mental worlds, drawing us magnetically toward the concepts they embody, end quote. He goes on through the rest of that chapter to show how the names that we have are important. They shape us. That's what Jesus is doing to Peter. He renames him. He says, you are going to be a rock. You're going to be a rock for me. You're going to be a rock in ways that you don't yet understand. But Peter, I want you to understand that I'm the one who's remaking you. I'm renaming you, and I'm the one that's going to make your character conform to me. That's the process of discipleship. Maybe we should be thinking more about the names that we give our children, right? We give them the names because we like the sound of it, or it's cool or hip. We think we're unique at the time, then we find out everybody else had that, that unique idea as well. The Puritans, they might have gone a little bit too far on their naming, uh, one uh, one uh, one uh, scholar noted this quote: "With the advent of theological controversy, parents began to declare their party more openly in their children's names. Faint not, Dighurst. Flee fornication, Andrews. Glory be to God, Pennyman. Hugh Agag in pieces, Robinson. That's my. That's a good one." Obadiah, bind their king in chains and their noble in arms, need him. All bore witness to the fashion. The more celebrated Barebone family, remembered in connection with the so-called Barebones Parliament, included among its members, praise God, Barebones. Fear God, Barebone. Jesus Christ came into the world to save Barebone. And if Christ had not died for thee, thou hadst been damned, Barebone. Commonly known simply as Dr. Damned Barebone. <laughs> Among the Puritans who left for America, similar names occurred. The most of the colonists were content with the basic Old Testament names of their offsprings. So you, we can probably take the naming too far, but it does illustrate the point. They wanted their children to grow up into the names. They wanted them to manifest that kind of faithfulness. And so they They stamped that character on their children. And Lord willing, hopefully their children did grow up into those names. And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, Simon, 
follow me, following me will entail a complete and radical life change. I am going to remake you into a person I have called you to be. I'm going to start today by giving you a new name, the rock. And that way you will be like me. For David describes me in Psalm 18 as his rock. And Simon, I call you, Peter, to remind you that I am remaking you. And this process of remaking us is Christian discipleship. That's what it's all about. Jesus promised the saints in Pergamum in Revelation 2.17. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus is going to give you a new name too. And I have every reason to believe that that name is going to be perfectly suited to the character that God has formed in you through your discipleship with Christ. You're going to look at that name and you're going to say, yes, that is my name. I've been living that name for however long I've walked with Jesus. And he has finally conformed me perfectly to it. And of course, as we wait, as we continue to walk with Jesus, he's already given you the name of Christian. You are already marked in the waters of baptism as belonging to God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are a Christian. That is your name. And you are steadily being molded to be like Christ. He is the image that God is remaking you into. He is the character that God is forming in you. Jesus is what God is calling you to be like. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that process is a process of having your desires changed so that you love what God loves and you hate what God hates. It's the process of conforming you to Christ. And that process as it unfolds in the life of Simon Peter gives me great hope. I mean, I'm just like Peter, impetuous. I've got my own plans for Jesus. Jesus, you're not going to die. Trust me. I will not let that happen. And well, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about, Peter. I will never deny you, Lord. Three times he denies him, right? That's me. That's how I live. And, and God says, I'm going to take you, and I'm going to make you the one who's going to go and proclaim boldly the good news of the gospel, be imprisoned, be beat, and then after he leaves prison, rejoice because he got to suffer for Christ. It's the same Simon Peter who refused to be crucified like his Lord, but instead was crucified upside down. He preferred the shame of a a crucifixion so that he could be identified with Jesus Christ. That's the process that Jesus is at work in your life doing. He's turning you from a Simon to a Peter. He's conforming you to him so that even in your sufferings, You look like Jesus. Paul says in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we don't know what we should want And we often want the wrong things.
We want what the world tells us to want, and, and often we're not listening enough to hear you tell us what you want from us. We want our desires to be shaped and molded by you. We want to answer the question, what are you seeking? And see that it is Jesus and the life that we have in him. We want our character to be remade so that we more and more resemble him. Father, do that great work. It's painful, it's hard, it's difficult, and we, we don't always enjoy it. But Father, do the work. Continue to strip off the old man. Burn away the dross of our infirmities and purify us so that we will shine as pure gold. We know that you will finish this process for you have promised it in your word. We're thankful that we can follow Jesus and that we too can be remade to be more like you. We pray this in his strong name and amen.